0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: All right, let's go ahead and start. It's good to see all of you. I'm going to continue in our uh study of evangelism and specifically going through the gospel outline, and what I have for those few of you that are here tonight, a special treat, a laminated card with the gospel outline that you can keep, all right, this is useful, this is not the kind of thing that you would give uh, to somebody, you could if you wanted to, but I would urge that you keep it for yourself uh, as an outline for the gospel, it's the very thing uh, we've been going through uh, last few weeks, we'll go through again tonight. So take one and pass around, and I'd like the extras back again if we could. Uh, we're basically talking about the gospel. What is the gospel? And uh, it's so important for us to go over this. Uh, let's start uh, in First Corinthians chapter 15. I want to share with you a verse that I was working on with my children yesterday. First Corinthians chapter 15. Who can tell me what that chapter is about? it is in there friend yeah. baptism for the dead we'll talk about that another time then again maybe not. It's about yes, uh, resurrection it's the great resurrection chapter. now I want you to read yeah I want you to read somebody uh, if you would read uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15 verse 1. somebody just read that for me. Now I would remind you brothers
0: of the gospel I preached to you which you received in
1: which you stand. okay so what does he want to do? <laughs> He wants to remind the Corinthian brothers of what? The of the gospel. Now, why in the world would he do that? Isn't that basic? Isn't that vanilla, foundational, starter stuff? Why does he want to do this? Why is he? That? Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel. Why? What's the reason for this reminder? Okay. Okay, all right. Anybody else? Why should we remind ourselves? Go ahead, Vic. That's right. How many of you are done with the gospel? I mean, just for yourselves, you're finished with it and it's finished with you. All right. The answer is none of us. We are all still under the gospel ministry. We need to be reminded of it. Uh, We need to saturate our lives with it for two reasons. One is that so that we can finish, we can be finished in reference to our own salvation. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it is the gospel that continues to work on us, right? Uh, I was, again, sharing this with my children, um, talking to them. We were going through uh, Matthew chapter 12. And the, at the very end of the chapter, it, uh, Jesus' mother and brothers come to get him. And Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? He says, everyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. That's what he says. It's very interesting. You have to look at the context in Mark's gospel because earlier in, in chapter four, I think it is, uh, they heard that huge crowds were coming to Jesus and his family concluded that he was out of his mind and came to take charge of him. That's what's going on. Now, I'm not sure what Mary was thinking. Maybe she was just swayed by her unbelieving sons. I don't know what's going on. It's just an interesting moment in the life of Jesus's family. But they come to take charge of Jesus because they think that he's out of his mind. Jesus was not out of his mind, but his family thought he was. And so they're going to take charge of Jesus. I don't know what they're planning on doing with him after they took charge of him. But at any rate, it's at that moment that Jesus says, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. In a way, he's warning them to keep walking with God. Now, the key thing is what, and this is what I asked my children in this morning devotional time we're having, what does it mean to do the will of Jesus' father in heaven? How do we do that? And, John chapter six answers that they came to Jesus and said, what must we do to work the works God requires? Do you remember what Jesus answered? The work of God is this, what? To believe in the one he has sent. Is that still for you? Do you need to wake up in the morning and believe in Jesus? I say you do. And I tell you that every sin you commit is a lapse of faith. You wouldn't do it if Jesus were standing right there. You wouldn't do it if Jesus, if you are fully trusting in Jesus' sanctifying power. Every sin is a lapse of faith. And therefore, we have to, in an ongoing way, every day, believe in Jesus. And therefore, we never get done with the gospel until we're, we're done. Until we're fully saved. So we need to be reminded of the gospel. But there's another reason, too. And that is so we can accurately proclaim it to others. We need to know what the gospel is. You need to have the gospel saturated in your mind. Now, I had a couple of good, um, Witnessing opportunity. Whenever I go on the airplane, watch out whoever's sitting next to me. Now, I had, I had the, uh, the, the challenge of a flight from Louisville to Cincinnati. Any guess on how long the airtime is from Louisville to Cincinnati, Ohio? 21 minutes. All right. <laughs> what are you going to do with 21 minutes, especially when the stewardess is talking about half that time, about seat belts and things that drop down and all that? And, you know, it makes it a challenge. I had about 15 minutes to work with, but it was a great time. Uh, had a good opportunity with a, with a woman there from a Catholic background, um, and we talked about the sacrificial system, and I'll get to that later in our evangelistic training. If I'm talking to a Catholic person who knows the Bible pretty well or at least is familiar with the worldview of the Bible and who is regularly attending Mass, I almost invariably use the sacrificial system to talk to them about Christ. Uh, and that's what we did that time. And she said she had never understood uh, wh- how the animal sacrifices fit into the gospel at all, and so it was a great conversation. Also, talked to a waitress uh, that wasn't so great, but we, you know, you do the best you can, you know, with what you have, and uh, we took the opportunities we have. See, the thing about about evangelism in in um, in the restaurant, there's a key moment, and that's as they're presenting the bill to you because that's their last encounter with you, and that's about when you're going to decide what their tip is. And they tend to be incredibly friendly, I've noticed, at that time. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, more so than the entire encounter across the whole evening. And I finally kind of light went on why they're so friendly at that stage, of the, you know, because that's it. They're not going to encounter you anymore, and you're making, as far as they're concerned, one of the most important decisions you'll be making for the whole evening. What is their tip, all right? But that's an opportunity, a little window of opportunity that they'll give you more leeway than ordinarily they would give you. And so you got to use that for the gospel. We talked uh, for a while. Uh, there was a group of us there and uh, had a good opportunity to witness. So uh, at any rate, he begins 1 Corinthians 15 and says, I want to remind you of the gospel. Do you know the gospel? If you, had, if you had 15 minutes from Louisville to Cincinnati, could you articulate it to somebody? If you had five minutes, would you be able to boil it down to something? Uh, If you had an hour and a half, could you really expand on each of these points? Would you be able to describe the gospel to somebody? You need to be able to do it. And in order to do that, you have to be reminded what is the gospel. Now, the laminated card I've given you has the basic outline that we've been following. Uh, The four-part outline is God, man, Christ, response. We're going to say some things about God. We're going to say some things about man. We're going to say some things about Christ. And we're going to say some things about their need to respond to what uh, what you 're talking about now, wh- however it is you get into that conversation uh, is it 's different every time you're never quite sure i 've given you some insights about you know getting in a conversation, talking about their interests in life, finding out what their spiritual background. One of the most helpful bridge questions i 've ever used is what is your spiritual background it 's really that simple. Just talk to me about your spiritual background and then they 'll talk about you know um, you know their denomination or what they did or that they never went to church at all but you're at that point you're into the conversation but uh once you get in there you're going to be communicating some uh doctrine now we've already talked some about God it is essential to begin with God frankly many tracks and approaches do not begin with God these days it's so important to begin with God uh i was thinking about uh some of the things that we learned in the together for the gospel uh conference that i went to last uh uh last week i want you to know this hand right here shook the hand of John MacArthur. <laughs> this hand right here. It actually happened. I never thought it would happen, but it happened. I have washed it many times since then, so I, you know, I say I'll never wash this hand again. I have done that. That'd be kind of gross. Uh, I did wash it, but uh, it was really an exciting time. And one of the things that they really wanted to focus on is what is the gospel? And let's be sure we're preaching the right gospel. The, the idea of justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law, is being attacked. Right now, And it's really the, the heart of the gospel, the idea that we are made right with God simply by faith in Christ and not by any of the works that we could do. Believe it or not, this is constantly under attack. Every generation, you have to defend it. And that's what we're needing to do. We have to believe the gospel. We have to know what it is. But it, it occurred to me that there's some certain concepts. We have to be very God-focused in the work that we're doing in the gospel itself. Uh, at one point, I kind of uh, put some things together and had this insight that the gospel, in the gospel, uh, we are saved by God, from God, for God, and to God. That's a very God centered message. We are saved by God, by His power, by His work through Christ, etc., not by ourselves, but we're saved from God. In what sense are we saved from God? From His wrath. He is, his wrath is very much the issue and his justice and his righteous indignation for all of our sins and from his law, those things are coming from God. And who can save us from God except God himself? And so we must be saved by God from God. But we're also saved for God. In other words, that we are God's own possession. We are bought with a price. Uh, we are his. He has bought us back and we are saved to God. He is our reward. He's what you get at the end of, uh, of the gospel after the gospel is done with us, what we get as our reward is God himself. So that's a very God-centered message. The gospel is God's story. It's good news from God. So we should begin in our outline with God. God, uh, man, Christ, response. So the next section we're going to study, the one we're going to look at tonight, is man. We're going to talk about human need, the need for the gospel. Basically, about God, we said what? That God is creator. That God is king. God is lawgiver, and God is judge. Now, if you can't remember all these things, that's precisely why I gave those of you that were here at the beginning of the time a laminated card, which has this whole thing outlined. If you didn't get one, um, they're here, and you can come get one at the... Actually, I'll go ahead and give them now. How many did not get one of these laminated cards? Just uh, take one if you haven't gotten one yet, and uh, we'll pass them out here. Go ahead. Grab hold of one. Thanks. So God is creator. God is king. God is judge. Now, as king, remember that God is a lawgiver and it would be good for you, as I think Scott talked about last time, to memorize a synopsis or a brief statements of the Ten Commandments. I think you ought to do that. It's really not that hard to memorize the Ten Commandments and I think you ought to use the Ten Commandments. If you had an hour on the plane with somebody, I pretty much always am going to talk to them about the Ten Commandments and it brings to them a sense of God's righteous standards. But now we're going to talk about man. First of all, we're going to connect to the earlier points that were made. All right, God is creator, man is created. We are created beings. Man is created by God the creator. Um, So take your outline. Uh, Do you have the the handout? Uh, We're in the section uh, entitled Human Need. Do you see that? We're on the right track there. All right. We live surrounded by people who do not yet know God through Jesus Christ and we are responsible responsible to follow the lead of the holy spirit to be witnesses to them you are responsible for witnessing opportunities that you have you're responsible for them and i consider ephesians 2:10 to describe the nature of that responsibility we are his workmanship created in christ jesus to do good works which god prepared in advance that we should walk in them i cannot walk in your good works one of the most important things that I want to get across in this whole matter of evangelism is that most evangelism will happen by you people, not on Sunday morning. All right, it's an old way of thinking that you bring them to church and and the pastor preaches the gospel on Sunday morning, and then people come forward and get saved. I'm not saying that that can't happen. I'm just saying that that you all are infinitely more. Uh, effective if you're witnessing throughout the week. There's just a culture or a climate of evangelism that has to happen in this church. And I'm excited because I already see it happening. I already see people taking faith steps and witnessing in the workplace or in various other settings that they weren't doing before. And that's really exciting, isn't it? I cannot walk in your good works for you. You can't walk in mine for me. Is it possible that God is going to lay out some evangelistic encounters for you over the next week? I think you ought to just ask God for them. I think you ought to pray every day for them. And then you ought to be alert and seek them out. You need to be ready for them. And I believe that we're going to be held accountable for them. We are responsible to do the good works that God has laid out that we should walk in them. Now, our pluralistic age teaches us that all roads lead to God, if there is a God, and that people are basically good with basically right ideas about everything. Uh, R.C. Sproul was talking about justification by faith alone, apart from works of the law. And he said, probably the second most popular form of justification these days is justification by works, that people consider themselves basically good people uh, who do good things. And on the basis of those good things, they'll be acceptable to God. This is a very common way of thinking. I thought that's interesting. The second most, I thought, what is the number one form of justification? He said, it's justification by death that basically everyone who dies goes to heaven. <laughs> and all you have to do is go to a funeral. And, and I've never been at a funeral where that wasn't the basic underlying assumption, except one. There was one. It was African-American lady. Who died and she had had a difficult life and her sister who was a very strong Christian had asked for a chance to stand up and say something during the service and she got up and said you know not everyone who dies goes to heaven and she went on like this it was really powerful I was shocked uh, and I was amazed at the boldness and I just thought it was, it was a different culture and the, and the freedom and there were a lot of people that testified and, and said certain things but a lot of the message was one of warning because the person had not openly lived for Christ in their life. But R.C. Sproul is saying, you know, the number one one way is justification by death, the assumption that if you die, you'll go to heaven when you die. Um, Well, no, uh, the issue is uh, that there is one God, and we are not basically good, and we don't basically have right ideas about everything. Sin has been reduced to two categories. There are two kinds of sin, crime and psychological issues. I'd like to see how you fit psychological issues in that little line next to there. Okay, do the best you can. But basically, sin is crime and just psychological issues. Even crimes are not the, the product of depraved character, uh, but rather brought on by adverse external conditions. Again, this is one of the points from the Together for the Gospel. The basic idea is that that if there's anything wrong, it's because something has been done from the outside to you and you have to find the the answer within yourself to deal with something that ha- has happened on the outside to you and the point they made is that the truth is exactly the opposite inwardly yourself you are screwed up and sinful and the only answer can come from the outside in to save you isn't that amazing how the whole thing's been reversed you know people basically saying my mother did this to me my you know this happened when i was 8 and all this it's all this stuff that's happened and because of that i'm now needing courageously to cope with these things and to find the answers for myself and all that. And so there's such a, her- a heroism in dealing with the psychological issues that are coming to us. But the fact of the matter is we are sinful from within and the only answer has to come from the outside. Jesus coming to save us. All right. So these things are brought on by adverse external uh, conditions, society, dysfunctional families, poverty, and therefore should be punished as little as possible. All other things formerly called sins are now seen in a therapeutic sense as things from which we need healing rather than the fruits of depraved character, which will be accurately and justly judged by God. We, are, uh, we therefore have self-help groups uh, for the healing of almost every imaginable state of the human soul. Chocolate Eaters Anonymous. Some of you may be interested in that. I have no information about a club like that or a group like that. Football Watchers Anonymous, Overspenders Anonymous, etc. The Bible paints a radically different picture of the natural human state apart from Christ. If we do not understand this doctrine, uh, we will get swept down the stream of pluralism, the roots of which is a denial of the universal and deadly effects of sin. That's what we're dealing with here is the issue of sin. We will think we have just one of many Gospels and that our Gospel may not even be the best. Friends, watch out. It's already happening. The exclusivity of the Gospel and of Christ is under great attack in our culture today. You have to have great courage to, to stand up and say in the public forum that we believe there is one and only one way to God, and that is Jesus Christ. That takes courage these days. You have to be willing to say it. <clears throat> Whether our non-Christian neighbor feels it or not, and even if his or her life seems to be happy, fruitful, fulfilled, and virtuous, yet the Bible reveals the following things about all unbelievers. Let's start with this one. They are spiritually dead. Just as a corpse cannot do anything physically, so a person apart from Christ cannot do anything spiritually toward God. Cannot turn to God, cannot repent, cannot believe, cannot do anything to please God, cannot change a spiritual situation in any way. I've mentioned this before, and I think it's important. Jesus' miracles are not just displays of his power, but they're displays of human inability, aren't they? I mean, when you look at most of Jesus' miracles, aren't they just putting on display the inability of human beings? I don't think just about every one. It'd be hard to think of an example other than perhaps the cursing of the fig tree. But even there, you know, you just know you can't do that. But most of them, it's basically you can't heal yourself. The blind man cannot heal himself. The lame man cannot walk. And certainly the dead man cannot do anything. So there's just a picture of human inability. And just as a corpse does not respond to any stimulus, so a non Christian will never respond to the gospel no matter how clearly and forcefully it is presented, unless God works it in their hearts by giving them life. Now, by the way, does this mean we shouldn't preach the gospel? No. All right, Robert, why not? If they can't respond, then why do it? Why?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, for some reason, God uses us as a mechanism. Right. Because we're commanded to. Mm-hmm. Because it's an act of worship. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. As an act of worship, obedience, we are doing it. I think it's also important. Go ahead. It is the power of God for the salvation of sinners. Uh, So human proclamation of the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of those who believe, right? So here's what you have to understand. You have to discern the callings of God or the callings that there are connected with the gospel. There really are two. There's a human calling and there's a divine calling. And the divine calling is always within a human calling. But the human calling doesn't always have the divine calling within it. The human calling without the divine calling is ineffective. In other words, if it's just you, you will be ineffective. It does not. You, it does not mean that you were not obedient. It does not mean that God was not pleased with you. You might have done exactly what God wanted you to do, but you were ineffective in that you did not produce an effect. They are spiritually dead. And yet you were obedient and God wanted you to do what you had to do. And it's not quite that simple, frankly, because I think there is a cumulative effect of human preaching, even if the person doesn't respond till years later. It's so complex. But what I'm saying is, at least as far as we know, we didn't lead them to Christ. They heard and they never believed. And so we should be faithful in doing that. But it's when God calls somebody. Now, see, that's different. We are talking about a God, it says in Romans chapter 4, who calls things that are not as though they were and gives life to the dead. Isn't that amazing? So God calls into existence something that didn't exist before, but he does that amazingly within the voice of the evangelist. Isn't that really amazing when you think about that as though God himself were making his appeal through us. We urge you be reconciled to God. So we are speaking these earthly words. We are earthly vessels. We're just, flawed human beings. And yet we are speaking a message with divine power, but it has actually directly no power unless God's in the middle of it, giving it divine power. And if he is, he will speak into existence that which did not exist before. A new creation being that will never die. He will speak into existence faith. He will speak into existence a heavenly light in the soul of the person. He has that power but he's the only one who does and he will give it and do it as he wills, when he wills. In the meantime, we have the responsibility to do the calling. So these spiritually dead people cannot, will not respond to the human call if that's all it is. They will not respond to any stimulus uh, to the gospel, no matter how forcefully it's presented. This person is as lifeless as a corpse and needs the work of spiritual creation as dramatic as was the original physical creation. Ephesians 2 says, as for you, You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. So if you take out in transgressions and sins, which is important, I'm not saying it isn't, but just condense it. You were dead while you lived. You see that? Living dead. That's what what they are. People are surrounding us every day and they are dead while they live. It's really kind of amazing. That's what Jesus meant when he was speaking about, uh, somebody said, let me follow you. I'd like to follow you wherever you go. And he said, uh, you know, Jesus challenged a man, follow me. And he said, first, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. All right. How can the dead bury anyone? Well, he means let the spiritually dead bury those who are physically dead. You have more important things to do. Follow me. Okay. As for you, you are dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you follow the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All right, secondly, this is also true of them. They are already under God's wrath. Already under God's wrath. That's very striking, isn't it? When you think about it, it's not necessarily that they are just in a, they're going to be in a future state of wrath. They are already under God's wrath. The Bible does teach us that there is a wrath to come. We'll speak about that in a moment. However, the Bible also reveals that all who are apart from Christ are constantly and daily under God's wrath because of their willful rebellion against him. They are already under his wrath and live under it moment by moment, though they do not feel it. They do not feel it. They do not sense it. Isn't that interesting? Ephesians 2.3 says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature Objects of wrath. Now, let me explain what I think that that is teaching. I think that the wrath is found in the experience of sin itself. If you look at Romans chapter one, it says God gave them over to a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. One of the greatest and and most uh, terrible things that can happen to us in this world is to be given over to sin. And so to be experiencing wrath means to be swimming to some degree in a life of dissolution and sin. Uh, and that is a great display of wrath. Romans 1.18 says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven. Uh, one of the greatest things God can do for us is to protect us from that, to, to save us from sin because sin is evil. It's a deadly plague. And so therefore, I think Ephesians 2.3 implies that, that moment by moment following the passions and desires of the flesh is a form of being under the wrath of God. Another verse teaches in John 3.36 Whoever believes in the son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the son will not see life for God's wrath remains on him. Again, note that they are under God's wrath already. Thirdly, they are storing up ever greater wrath. Not only do non-Christians live every day under the wrath of God, but also by their daily choices and sins, they actually increase the wrath they will experience on judgment day. This wrath is stored up by God's perfect and detailed record their deeds. Romans 2, 5, and 6 says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will give to each person according to what he has done. Now, in order for God to give to each person, according to what he has done, he has to have an accurate record of what each person has done. And that is what revelation teaches. He does The court is seated, the books are open, and and people are judged by what they they have done according to what is written in the books. And what's so terrifying for the unbeliever is that they're not aware of this ongoing record-keeping. They're not aware of the fact that every careless word, every action, every inclination of the heart, everything they have ever done is being recorded by a perfect judge. And the record is accurate. There will be no way to answer him once in a thousand times. And if you did answer those once in a thousand, you'd be wrong and the record would still be right. God is a perfect judge and everything that we do is uh, noted. And everything that's that's done apart from Christ by the unbeliever is just actually storing up more wrath every day. It's a terrifying situation. Uh, this is done by a flood of sins proceeding from a vile heart of rebellion. These sins follow certain recognizable patterns and are listed in many places in the New Testament. Romans 129 And following says they have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossip, slanders, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. God haters, sorry. Insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They're senseless, heartless, faithless, and ruthless. These are terrible descriptions, aren't they? A terrible description of the person apart from Christ. Now, this is what's going on. And by the way, it is good for us to know all this, not just about those sinners out there, but to know what we were apart from Christ, to give God eternal glory and thanks for what he saved you from, lest you should become arrogant, lest you should forget the grace that's already been displayed, lest you should complain about adverse circumstances in your life right now. Paul was always remembering what he was. Again, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says... I am the least of the apostles. And I do not deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Do you see that? And I think, why would he bring this up? Wasn't that forgiven, that persecution of the church? Wasn't it forgiven? Of course it was forgiven. But it was good for Paul to remember as long as he lived in the tent of this body, as long as he was still in danger of sin, as long as he was still under the influence of the world, the flesh, and the devil, it is good to remember what you were apart from Christ. It's good for you to know your habits and tendencies apart from Christ so that you can watch out, but also just so you can be incredibly grateful and thankful. The grace of God has come to us and forgiven us for all these things. And so, uh, number four, law or conscience constantly accuses. Every non-Christian stands constantly accused by either God's revealed law or by the internal law of conscience, sometimes at the same time. The written law saves no one. It only reveals the incredibly deep roots of sin in our hearts. In places where God's written law has not yet been revealed, creation testifies to the existence and attributes of God. Pagans living there are completely without excuse and their own, conscience testifies, uh, own consciences testify that they are evil. Romans 2, 14 and 15, Gentiles show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness in their thoughts, now accusing, now even defending them. That's, that says something very significant. It answers, it goes a long way to answering that question. What about those who haven't heard the gospel, right? Uh, that, that's a question that comes up quite frequently. Remember how I mentioned that I shook John MacArthur's hand. First time I ever spoke to John MacArthur was at a Q and A session in front of six or eight hundred people, and I ran up to a microphone. I've been a Christian for about three months, and I asked what I thought was a deep and complex, difficult question that he'd probably never heard before. What about those who haven't heard the gospel? You know, I'm thinking, you know, now as a pastor i'm thinking how many times i've been asked that question probably dozens he probably had answered it about 2000 by then um, but uh this is a, a big part of the answer is that the law of god is written in their hearts they know what's right to do and they don't do it they violate their conscience and so they stand guilty they're without excuse also romans 1 testifies that the god's god's existence and nature is revealed from what has been made so they're without excuse uh, Romans 3.20 says, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, but rather through the law we become conscious of sin. Law is not going to save anybody. And neither, by the way, will the example of Christ or the character of Christ. Now, these things actually only increase our sense of guilt. You know, if you try to do, uh, like Thomas Kempis, my imitation of Christ, good luck to you. All right. Actually, is even more difficult. Martin Luther actually was very suspicious of people that that spent a lot of time uh, on the character and the, and the nature of Christ, apart from his saving work at the cross, because what he's saying is it's, it's a, the highest form of law there is, is looking at Jesus's perfect example and saying, I'm going to imitate that every day. Now, after we've come to Christ, after we've been justified, then we want to know how then shall we live? Jesus is our example. And every day we will try to aspire by the power of the Spirit. We have the mind of Christ. We are to follow uh, others as they follow Christ and imitate Christ and all that. And that's important. But we're not saved by that, thank God. I mean, how would you like it to be, to be judged by how well you imitated Christ? I mean, that's a terrifying thought, isn't it? And yet I'm very glad that we have his example because it's really the display of the righteousness he gives us as a gift. That's, that's what we get as a gift is that perfect righteousness. But uh, at any rate, the law doesn't declare anyone uh, righteous Romans 4.14 says, law brings wrath. And Galatians 3.10 says, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Now listen to me, why is this so important? Well, R.C. Sproul said the number two way that people are justifying themselves is by their own good works. Well, how do you know if a work is good? Well, isn't there some law that tells you that it's good or not? And where do they get that law? Well, you really can get it one of two sources. You can get it either from God or you can make it up yourself or take it from some other human that made up a a set of rules and regulations, right? And of the two, which is higher? Is not God's law higher than any man-made law, any human system of regulations and rules? But yet here's the arrogance of man. We reject God's law and make up our own law and then think we've done well by it, you know? That's the worst part of justification by your own works. These days, we're not even dealing with God's law. We've made up our own law. Well, I think if I do these four things, you know, that I'll be a good person. It's like, well, where'd you get that? It's just the spirit of Cain that makes up its own religion and its own sacrificial system. You know, it's, it's, it's displeasing to God. So therefore, Paul takes us to the highest standard we can have and that's the written law of God. And he's saying all it ever does is bring wrath because we don't follow it. We don't keep it perfectly. Galatians 3.10, all who rely on observing the law are under a curse for it is written, "Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. And James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. He goes on to say, the reason for that is that the same lawgiver gave all of the regulations to, to not murder, but to commit adultery. You violated the same law and the same lawgiver. Do you see how desperate is the situation of the person apart from Christ? What hope do they have? How can they possibly be made right with God? How can they possibly stand before a perfect judge and be blameless on Judgment Day? It's impossible for them. And what's really staggering is that we are among that small group of people in the world who alone have the answer. Isn't that amazing? Are there really a lot of Christians in the world? There really aren't. And of those, how many are actually faithfully out there sharing the gospel? Smaller still. And so if you are willing to step up and to be a tool, an instrument in the hand of God, how rare are you? and how valuable and how vital to the advancement of the kingdom. You must do this work. You have to be willing to share the gospel. There's nobody else out there doing it. I mean, there, there's, a, there's a number of people uh, you know, in your circle of influence, and, and if you were to talk to them carefully, if they were to give you the information, you would come to the conclusion that you wonder who else other than you really could share the gospel with them. They're not in contact with any other Christians but you. So it's, it's good to keep that in mind. All right, number five, not one good deed will be accredited to their account. This is the most striking thing of all. Those who seek to be justified by their own good deeds, not only will they be shocked to find out that you can't do it, that good deeds can never pay for bad, they'll be even more shocked to find out even if they could, they have none. Zero. And you think, well, how can that possibly be? Don't we do good works? Well, relatively speaking, yes. And the Bible does use the word good, speaking of human beings. He was a good man full of the Holy Spirit, etc. And we use that kind of language, although we know that Jesus said no one is good but God alone. So let's take Jesus' statement. What did he mean when he said no one is good but God alone? Why did he say that? Is that an overly harsh assessment of the human race? Darcy, why, why does he say no one is good but God alone? They're polluted. If you have a rusty pipe and you take pure water and run it through, you're going to end up with rusty water. We are rusty pipes. We are defiled. And everything we do flows through us, through our nature. Uh, let's talk about motive. Why did you do it? Let's talk about what you did and let's ask, why did you do it? What were you hoping for? And you're going to find some pollution in there somewhere. And frankly, even if you don't, it doesn't mean there isn't any. just means you can't see it. We have a hard time seeing our own nature and our own reasons. Not one good deed credited to their account. It's especially important that uh, to understand that even the best deeds of a non-Christian are actually sins in God's sight because they are not done through faith. That's striking, isn't it? Everything that does not come from faith is what? It's sin. Romans 14 teaches us that. Everything that does not come from faith. Well, what would that include in a non-Christian's life? Everything. (laughs) Why? Because if they had faith, they would be what? justified they'd be christians and so therefore everything they do is not coming from faith and so therefore they have nothing but sins and by the way council of trent the roman catholic response to the reformation singled out this statement by luther saying all our good works are sins and basically if anyone says that good works are sins let him be anathema let him be a curse so i stand under the anathema as i'm teaching this that our good works are sins apart from the work of christ Nothing done, yeah, go
0: ahead. You. Yeah, go ahead., but what to achieve good within a society that is apart from the: gospel if all that's, done is sin anyway?
1: that's a very good question. The only way we can really answer it is to understand the function and purpose of government in God's redemptive history. And what is it? What is the law for? We know that the law is not for the righteous, but who is it for? It's for the wicked. It's for the, the perjurer and the slave trader and the, and the vile man. And so there's a listing of bad things. I think it's in First Timothy. And so to restrain evil and keep it from spreading widely, uh, law is given and government is given. Is that a valuable work? It is within its proper scope. But we should not imagine... I'm going to start bleeding out some of my material for Sunday. But John MacArthur wrote a book entitled "Why Is It Government Cannot Save You?" And the f- the fundamental argument is that righteousness does not come by the law, and what government does is work with the law all the time, and so therefore righteousness will never come by by the law. And I think it's a valid point; it needs to be made. But I think what we need to do is say, yes, but is there still a purpose of government? And there is. It's restraining evil so that we can do our work. Apart from government, we can't be here tonight. We really can't. You might think, how's that? Well, just think what anarchy would look like in the streets right now. If you looked out and you're seeing your cars blowing up or, you know, you wonder how you're going to even get home, um, you see the point. Uh, There is peace and quiet here, and we can do this work because of government. So that's my, my take on that. The question then you have to ask is how much of your personal life do you want to give toward that lower purpose? And what I'm going to argue is that some Christians are going to be called to give themselves to that to some degree. That's their calling. They're called to, to, the, to the life of a magistrate like Daniel. And and we should pray for them and, and not judge them and say, you know, you shouldn't be dirtying yourself with, with that government thing. So we'll, we'll talk more about this. No, it's a really good question. Very good question. All right. The government will not save anyone's soul, that's for sure. All right, uh, Romans 3.12 says, there's no one who does good, not even one. And Jesus said, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. Turn the page. Isaiah 64.6, all of us have become like one who's unclean and all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And Romans 14.23, as we've mentioned, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Sixth, we are, apart from Christ, people are incapable of pleasing God. The world is full of religious people who are trying to reach God through religious duties. Buddhists, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, animists, and others think that by their efforts to please God, they will somehow improve their standing with Him. Furthermore, many nominal so-called Christians are relying on their religious lives to commend themselves to God on that final day. But the Bible reveals clearly that all such efforts apart from Christ are useless. Romans 8.8. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And again, go back to, you know, you look at uh, Romans 14.23, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. We understand that the unbeliever is without faith. And so, therefore, um, they're doing nothing but sinning all the time and they cannot please God on the other side positively. It's impossible. Number seven, they are enemies of God. Whether a non-Christian feels it or not, they are at war with God and God is at war with them. Now talk, think about that for a moment. Think what it's like to have the infinite God of the universe at war with you. Think about that. I think you ought to meditate on it much. And, and the reason I think you ought to is, to is to make come alive with joy in your soul. Romans 5.1, which says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that magnificent? You should meditate so that verse just glows inside your heart. We have a state of peace with our Creator. We may not experience the peace of God, but we have peace with God. And you can experience the peace of God if you pray about all things, if you bring everything to Him with with petition, thanksgiving, present your request to God, the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. But you have to do that on a case-by-case basis. You're not on a case-by-case basis in Romans 5.1. You have a state, a lasting state of peace with God. God at peace with you and you at peace with God. Isn't that marvelous? And what is the value of that? Well, if you want a lively sense of that, then meditate on what it would be like to have God at war with you. Think about that. And that's what I think is really going on in hell. It's that God's kind of actively destroying his enemies all the time and never stops. It's, uh, It's a terrifying thing, really. When you think about it, this is true. The fact that people are enemies of God, it's true even of people who claim to feel close to God. That happens a lot in witnessing. Let me tell you how many times I talk to people who just feel close to God, you know, and it's not through Christ. I'm not saying that they're feeling close because of Christ. I'm just saying they feel close to God. That's really quite sad because they're, they, they pray. They talk to him throughout the day. God is their, their buddy or their partner or friend or something like that. It's really very scary because they don't know the gospel. They don't know Christ. Romans 5.10, it says we were God's enemies. Romans 8.7, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Colossians 1.21, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. James 4.4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to become a friend of the world uh, becomes an enemy of God. Number eight incapable of atoning for sin, what can they do to pay for their sin? What can this non-Christian do that you're talking to to pay for their sin? Suppose they became convinced of these things that you're saying to them and that they're under uh, a great wrath. What could they do to appease or atone for God? Or atone for their sin with God? And even if they came to the conclusion that Christ alone could atone for their sin. That only by Jesus taking on a human body and dying on the cross, shedding his blood on the cross, only in that way could their sin be atoned for. And if Christ were not willing to do so, what could they do to persuade him to come down and do the work? What of all their possessions could they cobble together and offer up to Jesus? It'd be enough to get him to come down. It's impossible. You see, we cannot atone for our own sin. We're We're desperate helpless apart from christ not only are non-christians under the wrath of god and alienated from him they have nothing they could possibly offer him as an atonement for sins the debt they owe to god is overwhelming because they have sinned day after day against an infinite god psalm 49 says no man can redeem the life of another or give to god a ransom for him the ransom for life is costly no payment is ever enough that he should live on forever and not see decay. What an interesting verse in the Old Testament. Isn't that a fascinating verse? It really is a precursor to the gospel and to the work of Christ, isn't it? Only in Christ can we uh, be freed. And then uh, Matthew 18, verse 23 and following. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, uh, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. Talent is 75 pounds. So you're talking 750,000 pounds of gold. I mean, it's really a lot of weight. I mean, think about it. That's that's a lot of weight. I mean, how many people, do you, do you have a pound of gold at home, do you think? I mean, think about it. One pound. Well, let's just start there. How many of you think you have a pound of gold at home? <laughs> I would think not. This is the only gold thing I, I own right here, my wedding ring, and that's not a pound. Thank God, all right? Be kind of, you know. Throughout the day, but uh 750,000 pounds of gold—that's incredible. 10,000 talents. That's—it's just just billions and trillions of dollars. It's just astounding. And and you, you should meditate. Why did Christ set the number so high? Well, it's because we just don't understand how how how. um infinite is God's holiness and how infinite is his wrath against sin and how perfect is his justice and how much he hates sin and how great is this problem. So he sets the number very high. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him since he was not able to pay. You could just circle that. That's the whole point. He cannot pay it. Even though he thinks he can, he falls to his knees and says, be patient with me and I'll pay back everything. You will. It's impossible the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Micah 6, 6 and 7 says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with a thousand of rams, thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? You see what Mike is wrestling with here. What do I have? What could I even offer to God for my sin? There's just nothing we could even offer that would be enough. Number nine, they are blind and deaf to spiritual truth. This is especially important for evangelists to remember. Non-Christian people are spiritually dead, so they're blind and deaf to spiritual truth. Have you ever thought you made a really good point and they don't think so? (laughs) I, I i just i you know don't you wait wait let's not go too fast i mean that was sublime there that was really insightful don't you see it you know and 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 it's not you it's just the the scripture it's so clear and yet they just don't see it this is a big issue uh in the new testament with the reaction of the jews to the gospel it's a big issue though seeing they do not see though hearing they do not hear their the, their hearts have become callous and they hardly see with their eyes or hear with their ears or turn and God would heal them. That, it's, that thing is quoted, I think, three times in the New Testament to deal with why the Jews just won't come to Christ. There's, and, and it's not just the Jews, friends. It's every unbeliever before God works in their heart. It's the same Jew or Gentile. They're like that. They just aren't seeing it. They're blind to it. And by the way, don't pat yourself on your back uh, for your own insight into the gospel. Where did it come from? How is it that you understand the spiritual significance of, of the dead Jesus on the cross. How did you come to understand that? It's because, like Jesus said to Simon Peter, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. God opened your eyes at some point, and you saw there your salvation. You know, frequently while I'm in worship and Eric's doing such a wonderful job leading and the Spirit is moving, I'll just look up at the wood uh, cross in the lattice work over Eric's head, and I'll just think again about the cross. And I'll think, how did I find that to be so beautiful? And I don't mean the wood up there, but just the concept of the cross. How did I find forgiveness there? How did it happen that it came to be attractive to me? You know, you have to give God the glory. Because I was spiritually blind too, and so were you. And at some point God opened our eyes and we saw it. And that's really what you're hoping for when you're sharing the gospel. Don't ever be frustrated. Just faithfully share it. Let God do the work. There's no need to get frustrated with it. Um, Matthew thirteen, fourteen, and them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, and you'll be ever hearing but never understanding. <clears throat> He'll be ever seeing but never perceiving. Uh, 1 Corinthians one eighteen: the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the spirit does not accept the the things that come from the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. That's so important. Uh, 2 Corinthians four three and 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers So they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And number 10, they are incapable of changing. Contrary to prideful human estimations, non-Christians cannot simply change their basic nature. Can an Ethiopian change his skin, a leopard his spots? No, cannot be done. You cannot change yourself. You know, you can't meet the condition of Matthew 12, make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. You can't meet the, meet the basic condition. You can't do it. You can't make the bad tree good. It can't be done. Uh, they cannot simply decide to follow Jesus, nor can they repent and believe on their own. They can make life reformations of a sort. They can stop drinking. They can quit smoking. They can lose weight. But they cannot change any of the things we have said above. They are still spiritually dead under God's wrath, constantly increasing that wrath through new sins, under the law and conscience, incapable of doing any truly good deeds, incapable of pleasing God, incapable of toning for past sins, enemies of God, and incapable of understanding spiritual truth. Martin Luther used the example of a drunk peasant riding on a donkey home after the bar is closed. What an ugly picture that is. And uh, he says, you know, they try to f- lean too far to one side and they fall down. They can get up out of the muck and get back on and say, well, I can't do that anymore. So they lean too far the other way and fall down on the other side of the donkey. And so that's the way it's going to be. You know, we were talking about this today. Saying, you know, in the end, like finally, would you rather go to hell because you were a drunk or to go to hell because you were a pridefully reformed former drunk? Which of those two would be a better scenario for you? I'm thinking you might say, neither. I would like a third option, like a saved person going to heaven. But does it really make a difference in the end that you went to hell because you were drunk or went to hell because you were pridefully form, former drunk? It doesn't matter. What matters is you, you have to be saved, not just reformed. A very clear teaching on this uh, is one of the most incredible statements Jesus ever made. This is in Matthew 12 again. What a great chapter is Matthew 12, but... Uh, Jesus said when an evil spirit comes out of a man goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says I'll return to the house I left and when it arrives it finds a house unoccupied swept clean and put in order and then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself and they go in and live there and the final condition of that man is worse than it was at the beginning. The last shall be worse than the first. That's, what, that's the KJV's translation of that. You know, what's the key word in that whole thing? Unoccupied. The demon comes back and finds the man unoccupied. There's no one living inside. Well, who could be living inside him? The Holy Spirit, the indwelling spirit, or Jesus by the Spirit of God, right? But that hasn't happened. But he has swept his house clean and put it in order, all right? So he's reformed his life. Is that good enough? Is it better now? Does it really make a difference? He actually says, in the end, it's worse. It's worse. And then Jesus expands that to talk about the whole nation. He says, that's how it will be with this wicked and adulterous generation. I've been driving a lot of demons out. I've been doing a lot of cleaning up. But after I leave and go back up to heaven, it's going to be worse in the end than it was at the beginning. It's a terrible thing. The the key issue is, are you occupied? Are you filled with the Holy Spirit of God? John chapter 5, Jesus heals a man uh, who was paralyzed all those years. And he finds him later and says, see you are well again. Stop sinning or something worse may happen to you. It's a warning. That man's not saved. He's healed, but not saved. He's unoccupied, swept clean and put in order, but he's not saved yet. And uh, what does he do? He goes and turns Jesus into the authorities, remember? And that's how the whole John 5 encounter occurs. Not looking good for that man right now. I don't know if in the end he came back and came to Christ, but turning Jesus in at that moment, not a good thing. All right. So just because you were healed by Jesus doesn't mean you are saved by Jesus. Jesus gives him a warning in John 5. All right. So we have um, the basic issue is they cannot change their heart uh, they have no desire for spiritual things, but only a continual lust for more evil. As we already quoted, can an Ethiopian change his skin or leopard his spots? It's kind of funny how I remember the same verses now while teaching than I did when I wrote it years ago. So uh, it's about the same idea. The idea is you can't change your essential nature. You can't change uh, yourself. Uh, Ephesians 4.19, having lost all sensitivity, they've given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. And there's the summary we already gave it a moment ago. Okay, this entire assessment runs directly contrary to the more modern emphasis on self-esteem. I actually think they should esteem themselves. They should just do it properly. (laughs) All right, esteem means just to weigh and evaluate yourself, right? I think you should evaluate yourself properly with the light of the law of God and come up, I need a savior. I think that's what what you ought to do. But we don't mean that these days by self-esteem. We mean something very positive. Think well of yourself, believe in yourself, that kind of thing. All right, uh, and the total lack of guilt that most people feel, modern people feel. It runs directly contrary to the modern gospel <clears throat> gospel of self-help and self-improvement. It runs directly contrary to the idea, our idea of basic goodness and our good deeds bring, being sufficient to pay for our sins. But it is the gospel truth, and it must be told. Now, in the outline, uh, we have these three things. Man is created, man is rebellious, and under judgment. And we'll get into that um, next time. Any questions about the fundamental nature of man and why it is we need to evangelize any questions about this at all None? yeah in That's a very good point. She was talking about how the law is a schoolmaster to bring you to Christ. And one of the things it does is just uh, brings you to a point of really of great frustration. You know, when you're quoting the same, like I frequently quote one of the Ten Commandments to my kids, honor your father and mother. <laughs> and, and I keep saying, you know, it is etched in stone or written in stone. God's not going to change his mind. You may be very strong-willed, but he's even stronger-willed than you are. And he's never going to yield to you, etc. And so you must submit to this or it's going to break you. And, and, they, and it comes to a point of frustration where they want to, but they can't. And then they're like crying out against themselves and they need to say, good point. Anybody else? Any other comments about this? All right, we're going to close in prayer. Um, as soon as I'm done, uh, 10 minutes after we're done, we're going to have a very brief, especially called church conference to just pass out. Uh, a the language of a bylaw change we're not going to discuss it or vote on it tonight the time for that will be next week at the regularly scheduled church conference but uh, we're going to pass it out that'll be 10 minutes after i'm done praying okay father we thank you for the uh, time that we've had tonight to study um, why it is we need the gospel we needed the gospel ourselves and also why it is we need to be active in evangelism for our neighbors and our co-workers and family and friends that don't know jesus yet Lord, all I can do, I'm just overwhelmed as I've gone over these things and remember who I was apart from Christ and, and who I still am by nature in some ways uh, or by habit, not by nature, having been given a new nature in Christ, but just habit patterns that still remain. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you for saving my brothers and sisters in Christ. And Lord, I pray that you give us courage to share the gospel with people, that we would be faithful to do so and give us fruit, uh, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen